0: Welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world, dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We explore the complex realm of conflict, because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in.
1: since the attacks by hamas on israel on october 7th and the subsequent military operation by israel a series of legal questions have arisen regarding the relevant components of the international legal framework today's podcast is the second part of a two-part series focusing on the legal questions related to the use of force or use at bellum, and the laws governing the conduct of hostilities and the means and methods of warfare referred to as use in bellum. I'm Dr. Maria Varaki, lecturer in international law at the Department of War Studies. In this episode of the War Studies podcast, I will be speaking with Emily Crawford, Professor of Public International Law at the University of Sydney's Law School. Emily has published extensively in the field of international humanitarian law, including three crucial monographs and a textbook on international humanitarian law with Alison Peart. She is also an associate of the Sydney Centre for International Law at the University of Sydney and a co-editor of the Journal of International Humanitarian Studies. Today, we are fortunate to have a true expert in international humanitarian law. So I would like to start this podcast by asking Emily, what do you mean at the end of the day by international humanitarian law?
2: So international humanitarian law is the body of international law that regulates the conduct of hostilities. So it's a a body of law that has a, a long history in both custom and in treaty, starting in the middle 1800s, when states got together to set down some basic rules for the conduct of hostilities. So for things like permissible weapons, permissible targets, who was entitled to participate in an armed conflict, and what kind of rules you had to follow when you, for instance, occupied territory. One of the fundamental rules of the law of armed conflict in both international and non-international armed conflicts is that there is an absolute prohibition on targeting anyone who can be classified as civilian, so anyone who is not taking direct part in the hostilities. So that's a basic rule and that's in both additional protocol one which israel is not party to, but it's also in additional protocol two and it's in common article three it's considered to be customary international law so it applies in all armed conflicts but on top of that there are also prohibitions on attacking people who might have previously participated in the armed conflict but who no longer are either because they've surrendered or because they've been wounded or injured so there is this general prohibition on not targeting anyone who is not or does not take direct part in the hostilities. That's the starting point of the modern law of armed conflict. But on top of that, anyone who is not taking direct part is also protected from things like hostage-taking. So there is an absolute prohibition on taking hostages in all kinds of armed conflict and all kinds of situations. Uh, There is a prohibition on what's called outrages upon personal dignity. So civilians and anyone who has surrendered is not to be subject to things like humiliating or degrading treatment. You're not meant to be subject to any kind of medical or scientific experimentation. You're meant to be protected under the law of armed conflict. And the protections for civilians also extend to civilian installations and civilian property. So civilian property is not to be targeted unless it can be proven to have been a military objective. And on top of that, that it's Destruction or immobilization or its capture offers a concrete and direct military advantage. So it has to also be making a significant contribution such that its immobilization or its destruction assi- you know, meaningfully assists one of the sides to the conflict. And so that prohibition extends to things like not just civilian property, but also to things like cultural property. So, you know, churches, mosques, synagogues anything that is prima facie civilian in character, but it also, there's an additional prohibition for targeting things like hospitals. So for example, hospitals are considered to be prima facie protected under the law of armed conflict unless they are being used for military purposes, but that's a very specific test that has to be applied as to whether or not they are actually being used to advance the military objectives of the other side. So there is this absolute obligation under the law of armed conflict that the wounded and sick need to be protected. And that extends to anyone who cares for the wounded and sick and any installation that looks after the wounded and sick.
1: So Emily, after you have clarified in the previous question about the fundamentals of international humanitarian law, I would like to proceed further and ask you what kind of rules of international humanitarian law you consider relevant? One of the fundamental
2: rules of the law of armed conflict in both international and non-international armed conflicts is that you don't target civilians. So there is an absolute prohibition on targeting anyone who can be classified as civilian. So anyone who is not taking direct part in the hostilities. So that's a basic rule and that's in both additional protocol one, which Israel is not party to, but it's also in Additional Protocol 2, and it's in Common Article 3. It's considered to be customary international law, so it applies in all armed conflicts. But on top of that, there are also prohibitions on attacking people who might have previously participated in the armed conflict but who no longer are either because they've surrendered or because they've been wounded or injured. So there is this general prohibition on not targeting anyone who is not or does not take direct part in the hostilities. So that's that's the starting point of uh, the modern law of armed conflict. But on top of that, anyone who is not taking direct part is also protected from things like hostage-taking. So there is an absolute prohibition on taking hostages in all kinds of armed conflict and all kinds of situations. Uh, There is a prohibition on uh, what's called outrages upon personal dignity. So civilians and anyone who has surrendered is not to be subject to things like humiliating or degrading treatment. You're not meant to be subject to any kind of uh, uh, medical or scientific experimentation. You're meant to be protected under the law of armed conflict. And the protections for civilians also extend to civilian installations and civilian property. So civilian property is not to be targeted unless it can be proven to have been uh, a military objective. So an, an object that's either by its nature, location, purpose or use, makes an effective contribution to the armed conflict and on top of that, that its destruction or immobilisation or its capture offers a concrete and direct military advantage. So it's not just that it's being used for for military purposes, it has to also be making a significant contribution such that its immobilisation or its destruction Assist, you know, meaningfully assess one of the sides of the conflict. And so that prohibition extends to things like not just civilian property, but also to things like cultural property. So, you know, churches, mosques, synagogues, anything that is prima facie civilian in character. Um, but it also, there's an additional prohibition for targeting things like hospitals. So, for example, hospitals are considered to be prima facie protected under the law of armed conflict, unless they are being used for military purposes, but that's a very um, specific test that has to be applied as to whether or not they are actually being used uh, to advance the military objectives of the other side. Uh, So there is this absolute obligation under the law of armed conflict that the wounded and sick need to be protected, and that extends to anyone who cares for the wounded and sick and any installation that looks after the wounded and sick. So obviously, any of the kinds of activities that have taken place around hospitals have that additional layer of protection that both sides need to be aware of under the law of armed conflict.
1: Well, when we teach international humanitarian law, we talk about these fundamental principles of international humanitarian law that reflect those customary law. So we talk about the principle of humanity, military necessity, distinction, proportionality. And several times I think people use these words, but I'm not sure whether they fully understand uh, about how these four fundamental principles of international humanitarian law interact with each other. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that?
2: The foundational documents of the modern law of war or the law of armed conflict were the four Geneva Conventions adopted in 1949 that deal with the wounded and sick in armies in the field. That's Geneva Convention 1. Geneva Convention 2 deals with the wounded, sick and shipwrecked uh, of armed forces at sea. Convention 3 deals with prisoners of war and Convention 4 relates to Civilians. They were then, those four Geneva Conventions were then updated in 1979 to have additional documents appended to them. So, Additional Protocol 1 deals with international armed conflicts, and Additional Protocol 2 deals with non international armed conflicts. So, the foundational principle of the modern law of armed conflict or modern IHL is the principle of distinction that parties to an armed conflict must distinguish between civilians who take no direct part in hostilities. And persons who do take direct part in hostilities. So in an international armed conflict, that's, uh, that's a combatant uh, or a combatant, depending on which way you prefer to pronounce it. So basically members of the armed forces who take direct part. And then in the context both of international and non-international armed conflict, the term is, uh, persons taking direct part or, or colloquially known as fighters. And so the principle of distinction basically says that attacks should only be directed at military objectives. So military installations or persons who are taking direct part in hostilities and that civilians should not be deliberately targeted. So that's the principle of distinction. That's one of the easier ones. When we move to the distinction, uh, the principle of proportionality, the principle of proportionality basically says that in launching an attack, parties to an armed conflict must ensure that they do so proportionately, that the collateral civilian damage is not disproportionate in relation to the intended or anticipated military advantage gained by the attack. So the principle of proportionality recognises that while obviously it is uh, prohibited to deliberately target civilians, there might be instances where civilians nonetheless are incidentally injured by an attack. And so the principle of proportionality requires that states' parties essentially do an assessment that if they know that there are going to be incidental civilian casualties, they have to essentially assess how many they're going to be in light of the anticipated military advantage gained from the attack. And if too many civilians are going to be incidentally affected, the attack needs to be called off because it would be disproportionate. So proportionality and distinction are connected. uh, And both of them uh, feed into this other principle known as military necessity. And basically military necessity, again, also one of these foundational principles that's been around in customary law for, for over a century is based on the idea that the only legitimate aim of a party to an armed conflict is to achieve the military objectives of the war and that they are allowed to use force only insofar as achieving those military aims is necessary. So, again, it's essentially based on this idea of the objective of war should not be to completely annihilate the enemy. The objective of an armed conflict should be to compel the other side to either sign a truce or sign an armistice um, or to surrender and that you are only permitted to use the amount of force necessary to achieve that cessation of hostilities. So destruction just for the sake of destruction is is essentially prohibited by the principle of military necessity, again, feeding into proportionality and distinction. And the last of the principles, the idea of humanity, it's actually a little bit more amorphous than some of the other principles of, of IHL. Uh, But it's based on this idea, again, that an armed conflict should not be about wholesale slaughter. And it comes from a a principle that was introduced in the 1800s in the Hague Regulations by a a Russian jurist and and politician known as um, Martins, who essentially said that in conducting hostilities, states or, or participants in an armed conflict should be guided by, among other things, dictates of public conscience and the interests of humanity again, it was about, was this idea of restraint in warfare, that wholesale slaughter is not permitted, that you should have uh, achievable aims, but that are limited solely for the purpose of winning the conflict and not about the complete wholesale subjugation or destruction of the enemy. So they are all interconnected and they revolve around this idea of that only military objects or only military objectives and military personnel can be targeted, and only when they are making a direct contribution to the armed conflict But if a military combatant is no longer participating in the hostilities because, say, they've been injured or are sick, they are no longer a threat and so they can't be targeted. So they're all interconnected in that respect.
1: In our previous podcast with Marco Milanovic, we talked about the principle of proportionality within the context of the use ad bellum as the big picture. However, proportionality within the national humanitarian law is assessed in a contextual way. What is your take with regard to the principle of proportionality within the current conflict? Once all of the decision
2: making has has been carried out and once something has been identified as a legitimate target, so once it's been identified as a military objective, the principle of proportionality applies as an additional layer of protection on top of that. So that basically that even if an attack is permissible under the law of armed conflict, the attacking party has to make sure that the attack is not going to be disproportionate. So that a lawful attack still has to take into account um, this requirement that it must not be excessive in relation to the expected military advantage. So the, the principle of proportionality basically says that any kind of incidental loss that is attached to an already legitimate attack must not be excessive in relation to the military objective intended. The moment that incidental damage gets to be disproportionate in relation to the military objective believed to be obtained from the attack, an attack must be called off, even though an ostensibly lawful attack must be called off. So proportionality acts as a kind of an an additional layer of protection. So in the Gaza conflict, even though attacking military installations or installations that are clearly being used by Hamas is permissible, uh, what's required is that an additional level of an assessment of whether or not the incidental effects of the attack are going to be disproportionate in relation to that initial military objective that's intended to be obtained.
1: You mentioned from the beginning that the protection of civilians is a fundamental demand when it comes to international humanitarian law. And the last weeks, we hear more and more this uh, urgent need for further protection of civilians. And I was wondering if you could comment about the future. Do you think that uh, there will be a discussion about particularities with regard to protection of civilians in the, in the particular context?
2: Absolutely. It's it's very clear in the law of armed conflict and in international criminal law that intentionally starving the civilian population, basically denying them uh, relief supplies is considered a war crime. So if that can be proven in those instances, the problem comes from the characterization of a particular population as being civilian. The presumption is that the population is considered to be civilian and that even the presence of, you know, fighters in the civilian population does not deprive the population of its civilian status. But I think what we're seeing in Gaza has been a very liberal interpretation of what is civilian, what is not civilian. And, you know, that's that's made applying the law in real time, you know, difficult to watch, but, in you know, in in the aftermath, we are really going to see a, a much more clinical and, and precise assessment of whether or not assessments at the time, because that's the, that's the test that gets used, was it a reasonable assessment at the time to be cutting off an entire population, denying them aid, denying them access to foodstuffs and getting to that level of engaging in starvation tactics and siege tactics, which are, are, are prohibited under international law.
1: One of the first statements of the International Committee of the Red Cross was that within international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflict, there is no hierarchy in pain and suffering. How do you understand this statement by the International Committee of the Red Cross with regard to the rationale behind the laws of armed conflict or else international humanitarian law?
2: The law of armed conflict makes it clear that there are certain acts that regardless of who they are committed against are always illegal it doesn't matter whether the person is a civilian doesn't matter if the person is taking direct part if they are wounded sick or shipwrecked if they're a pow or even if they're an active combatant taking direct part there are certain acts that are always illegal so hostage taking is always illegal regardless of, of who it's carried out against sexual violence is always illegal again, regardless of who it's carried out against, and uh, deliberate killing of someone who is defenceless, including a combatant who has laid down their arms. So there are certain acts that are always considered to be illegal in any type of armed conflict, regardless of who they are against. And we have seen you know, very credible evidence that that Hamas has carried out a number of these kinds of acts um, against the Israeli population. And so that that's a clear violation. And again, there is The ICRC is absolutely right when they say that there is no hierarchy, that the whole point about international humanitarian law is it applies regardless of who started the war, and it applies regardless of whether or not one side is uh, morally or politically justified in what they're doing, whether or not there has been a history of occupation or oppression or domination or anything like that. The whole point about IHL is it's meant to apply to everyone, regardless of the motivations that have driven the conflict.
1: Having said that, we have seen something very interesting uh, these last weeks about the ICRC and uh, and their role in the conflict, you know, what they, they are supposed to do and what they are allowed to do. So would you like to talk a little bit about that?
2: The ICRC is an, an organisation that's been around for uh, over 150 years, and they have, been charged by states with this mandate to ensure the respect for the law of armed conflict in situations of armed conflict. And over the decades, it's expanded beyond the context of armed conflict and has gone to things like peacekeeping operations and situations of internal strife and related situations. But essentially what it boils down to is the ICRC has been entrusted with this role of ensuring that everyone is aware of the rules of the law of armed conflict and tries to follow them as much as possible. And the way in which the ICRC fulfils this mandate, um, which is legally protected in international armed conflict and is is strongly recommended in in non-international armed conflict, is the ICRC will do things like go and visit prisoner of war camps or detention facilities. They will provide training To personnel if it's necessary if if it's been requested and they will also um, act to do things like uh, be the kind of neutral third party for things like hostage exchanges or or prisoner of war exchanges so the icrc has this this specially protected role in in international humanitarian law and they do their job very well because they've it's essentially all they do and they've been been doing it for, for decades but the only way the ICRC has this special mandate is is because they espouse this principle and they are driven by this principle of neutrality, which is they don't take sides. They don't say that one side is more deserving than the other. They talk about, they, they're very clear that the whole point of the law is it's meant to apply without differentiation to any of the parties to the armed conflict. And they work on the basis of neutrality and confidentiality, which is that they try and liaise with states as much as they possibly can because they rely on states to allow them into the territory, to be able to visit POW camps, to be able to, to carry out their role. They will not take sides. And if it looks like their position is going to be politicized, or if it looks like they are going to be denying access, it is very rare that the ICRC will actually come out and condemn one state. So what you will always, you almost always see is that in ICRC communications, they will talk about, we call on all parties to the conflict to respect the law of armed conflict. It is almost never that the ICRC comes out and actually names uh, one side as having completely violated the rules. So neutrality and confidentiality can look to the common person uh, like they're trying to hedge their bets or like they're failing to condemn particular activities. So that if you look at all of the things that have taken place uh, in, in Gaza and surrounds, but even in other armed conflicts, it can look like they're essentially kind of implicitly sanctioning uh, one state or one group's activities because they haven't actually come out and condemned them by name. So that is usually the the critique that emerges uh, in, in public discourse about the ICRC, that somehow they seem partial, that, say, in failing to condemn Hamas, they are pro-Israeli or in failing to condemn the IDF, they're pro-Hamas. And that's not what they are. Their whole point is they are trying to make sure that everyone follows the rules and that everyone has as much of the protection as they can possibly get because they are dependent on everyone essentially not locking them out of the country in order for them to be able to get access to those who are most affected by the armed conflict.
1: My next question is about language. And I always tell my students words do matter and uh, that it's very important to use the language in a very cautious way and to understand what type of language we use. So um, I have a question which actually reflects a little bit about the debate that we have also in legal academia. We hear a lot about war crimes, but but in, in the legal language, we talk about allegations of war crime. We say alleged war crimes, alleged violations. How does it work with the international humanitarian law, whether they are led to violations of international humanitarian law? Uh, when can we talk with some affirmative certainty that this is a violation and this is not a violation? How different are we, as we say, lawyers from common people, you know, who use this language?
2: So war crimes are particular breaches of uh, the Geneva Conventions and the additional protocols that are considered to be uh, the most serious violations thereof. So in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, there are a number of breaches of the conventions and the protocols that are considered to be essentially the sort of most serious. So even though in the conventions and protocols, there are literally hundreds of rules, only a certain number of those are considered war crimes. And so they're things like, say, for instance, uh, recruiting children under the age of fifteen to participate actively in hostilities, or engaging in sexual violence, deliberately targeting civilians, uh, carrying out uh, biological or medical experimentation, engaging in inhumane conduct against someone who's been detained or a prisoner of war. So these are all examples of of war crimes, and they vary again according to the type of armed conflict. So the list of war crimes that can be committed in an international armed conflict is far larger than the list of war crimes that can be committed in a non-international armed conflict. Under the Geneva Conventions, under the additional protocols, there um, there are certain acts that when a state violates them, we can clearly say this is clearly a violation of the principle of distinction. This is clearly a breach of the principle of proportionality. But part of the reason why we can do that is because we're essentially saying it's, it's a violation of the rules as done by the state. Where we start getting into the more cautious language when we start talking about alleged war crimes is because we are now moving into the realm of international criminal law. And international criminal law deals with individual criminal responsibility. And like domestic criminal law is based on the idea of you have to actually prove the guilt, that you cannot prejudice uh, a trial. By claiming that someone is a war criminal if there hasn't if it has not been proven. So often, what you'll see, and we're, we're seeing this a lot on on Twitter with the debates that are happening on, uh, about what's taking place in Gaza, is you'll you'll see very cautious statements of if this is proven, then this is clearly a war crime because you can't actually say that it's a particular individual has committed a war crime unless you can it has been proven in either the international criminal court or in a domestic court applying those rules of uh, international criminal law if as they've been transformed into the domestic law of that of that state so that's why you will often see that kind of terminology and for lawyers it is about being cautious because for those of you listening in who may not be aware we've recently in Australia had a series of, of court cases with regards to military personnel in Australia who served in Afghanistan where the implication was that they had committed war crimes and it led to a quite protracted defamation case with the person who had been, who was alleged to have carried out these acts, Ben Robert Smith, essentially saying, you're you're calling me a war criminal and that's not been proven in a court of law and so you've defamed me. So essentially what happened was that then that went to a defamation case and it was proven to a civil standard but it still hasn't been proven to a criminal standard So even now you see this very kind of cautious terminology of, you know, essentially proven to a civil standard war criminal, Ben Robert Smith, rather than uh, in the context of of a criminal case. So it is that kind of cautiousness that lawyers always engage in because there are ramifications. You call someone a war criminal and it's not proven, you have defamed their character.
1: I think we all deal with this unsatisfactory feeling, you know, because when, when students ask, is that a war crime? You try to explain and use this very cautious language, which sometimes say, oh, what is international law at the end of the day has... To tell us, you know, if you cannot give us an answer. Um, having said uh, that, you just uh, published the co-edited issue regarding, um, and I want to give the exact title about that, the terminology of the law of warfare, uh, which was a, a very interesting study about how states use uh, this particular terminology. And uh, you use also the example of Israel and Arab conflict, irrespective of what happened the last month. And I was wondering whether you would like to share with us some of these main um, conclusions or observations from that study? Well, it
2: actually goes right back to what we started this discussion about, the idea of that you have these competing terms or or interchangeable terms, the law of armed conflict, international humanitarian law, what do they actually mean? What do they actually do? And it came up in just kind of casual conversation with with a colleague of mine who was a human rights lawyer who didn't know anything about IHL but naturally thought that humanitarian had some kind of human rights element to it. And I had to explain to her that while the term had been influenced by the emergence of international human rights law after the end of the Second World War, it wasn't being used in that context and that that can be a source of confusion. And so together we then essentially did a little bit of a pilot study with a a colleague who is a a, a linguistics expert because we wanted to look at how these terms got used in state practice. Now, obviously, we were limited in our ability to actually look at the entirety of state practice as it plays out in, in the General Assembly. But what we were really interested in looking at was, are these terms genuinely being used interchangeably by states And is there some reluctance to use the term international humanitarian law because it might have those kinds of human rights uh, connections? Because if you have a look at any of the, uh, certainly the, the American scholars of the law of armed conflict, they absolutely, with a few exceptions, refuse to use the term international humanitarian law because their position is the law is not about, it doesn't really have a humanitarian aim. It has the aim of protecting the army and allowing the armed forces to carry out the war. And that's not humanitarian, that's military. So we really wanted to look at whether or not these terms had actually been used interchangeably. And in our our very early pilot study, and part of the reason why we picked the um, Israeli conflict with Arab states and then eventually with, with Palestine, was because it was the only ongoing conflict that kind of predated the Geneva Convention, so from 1948, and was still ongoing. So we were able to really kind of track everything that cropped up in the Security Council and everything that cropped up in the General Assembly around the outbreaks of you know, hostilities to full-blown wars to see whether or not the terms law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law were used. And one of the things that we we found, and, and I, I emphasise it really is just a pilot study where our next, our next article is looking at expanding well beyond it. What was really interesting to see was it was almost never that the term international humanitarian law got used in either the Security Council or the General Assembly. It's really only uh, in late 90s, early 2000s that you start seeing the term pop up, which is interesting when you consider it's a term that gets introduced in the 70s. Likewise, the term law of armed conflict never appears in any General Assembly or Security Council resolutions. What instead the General Assembly and Security Council do is they talk about calling on parties to respect international law, calling on parties to respect international conventions, or they will specifically say calling on parties to respect Geneva Convention 4 with regards to the protection of civilians. And again, what our very kind of preliminary investigation seems to be suggesting is that there was this real reluctance to talk about international humanitarian law so it was either, either hyper-specific by referring to Geneva Convention 4 or incredibly generic by referring to international law more generally. And I think that that tells some, an interesting story about the the politically fraught nature of what's been taking place uh, in Israel and in, in, and in the Arab region since 1948, that there is a, a, a real reluctance on the part of the General Assembly and the Security Council to label it. And it's understandable when you consider how complicated it has been, because the conflict in with Israel and, and her neighbors has encompassed non-state actors, state actors, situations of occupation, situations of full-blown war to ongoing, you know, wars of national liberation to ongoing tensions and, and disturbances not yet reaching the the level of armed conflict. So you can you can understand why there is this kind of historic reluctance.
1: Well, um, I have a final question. Uh, starting from this conflict, there are many, many uh, references you know, to morality and to international law. Uh, and uh, as I say, sometimes, you know, international humanitarian law, the laws of war, the laws of armed conflict, you know, they appear to be unsatisfactory to people uh, without understanding what is the purpose. Uh, so I was wondering, you know, what is your final take about the role of international law, in particular international humanitarian law, at the end of the day, despite its imperfection and different interpretations and uh, uncertainty. Uh, why should we still talk about and, and uh, emphasise the importance of international law on both parties? Well, it's
2: easy to be cynical about international law and international humanitarian law because it's very easy to point to examples of the rules being broken. You know, alongside the conflict that's taking place in, in Gaza, we obviously have the ongoing war in Ukraine, which has itself been witness to to numerous you know, brutal violations of the law of armed conflict, and this is not even touching on the kinds of conflicts that are taking place further afield, including uh, allegations of, of, you know, genocide in Sudan and, and the, the DRC. So it is really easy to be cynical and to think that this does nothing. I can give you the, the kind of academic response, which is that research that has been done over the previous decades has shown categorically that the introduction of rules to minimise and to limit this kind of behaviour has gone a huge way to actually achieving its aim of minimising and, and getting rid of this behaviour, that before there were rules that dictated what you could and couldn't do with prisoners of war, essentially someone who was captured in the context of an armed conflict could expect summary execution. That is no longer accepted practice and when it happens there are avenues of recourse. I think what I would encourage people to think about or at least to embrace when they're trying to grapple with how despairing you can feel when you look at these kinds of situations is to remember that international law, like any legal system, is flawed. It isn't perfect and there is only so much a legal system can do to prevent certain types of behaviour because every legal system has violators. Otherwise, we would never have domestic law cases ever. So your ability to, to have faith in international law is partially dependent on what you see the role of law as being. If you solely see law as being something that's about preventing behaviour, you're always going to be disappointed. But if you see law a bit more broadly, a bit more holistically, you can see it not just as a system that prescribes a certain behaviour but also sets up systems for what happens when the rules are inevitably broken. And I would also encourage people to, to, to know that just because there are situations where the worst perpetrators seem to be getting away with it, there are plenty of examples of perpetrators not getting away with it, which seems like it's kind of damning with faint praise. But we are dealing with situations where people are behaving at their worst, and humankind has never been able to prevent war entirely or stop war entirely. So anything that can be done to kind of work towards that aim is something that should be encouraged and supported even if it's never going to be absolutely perfect.
1: Well, on that note, thank you very much, Emily, for this wonderful discussion. Very rich, thought-provoking. And and I hope that uh, via our discussion, um, we gave some a better understanding of what is international humanitarian law, what its role, its limits, its possibilities. And thank you very much, all our, our audience, you know, our listeners. And uh, Emily, thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in person in London soon. Thank
2: you.
0: You've been listening to the War Studies podcast, produced and edited by the School of Security Studies communications team. For more information on our work, visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies podcast.